0: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. Temple Grandin didn't talk until she was three and a half years old, communicating her frustration instead by screaming, peeping, and humming. In 1950, she was diagnosed with autism, and her parents were told she should be institutionalized. Instead, she went on to become professor of animal science at Colorado State University and a world leader in designing humane facilities for livestock. She's a prominent author and activist in the autism field, her life is the subject of a 2010 HBO movie. Dr. Temple Grandin is coming to Utah for a Thursday event at Utah State University, talking about her recent book, The Autistic Brain, Helping Different Kinds of Minds Succeed. Temple Grandin's books also include Emergence, Labeled Autistic, Thinking in Pictures, Animals in Translation, Unwritten Rules of Social Relationships, The Way I See It, Different, Not Less, and many other books. And uh, she joins me for the hour today on Access Utah. Uh, Dr. Temple Grandin, uh, welcome to the program.
1: It's great to be here.
0: Uh, Joining us from, I guess, Fort Collins, Colorado?
1: Yep, I sure am. Fort Collins, Colorado.
0: All right. Uh, Before we jump in, uh, very interesting um, facts from your life and and about autism, of course. Not many of us have a movie made about us. There's a movie called Temple Grandin. What what did you think of the movie?
1: I thought they did a wonderful job on the movie. Uh, Claire Danes became me. I love the fact it showed all my projects and uh, it showed sensory problems, it showed how visual thinking works. Um, I really liked the movie.
0: Oh, good. Uh, let me d- just read the first sentence from the, from the book, The the Autistic Brain. You say, uh, I was fortunate to have been born in 1947. If I had been born ten years later, my life as a person with autism would have been a lot different. Why, why is that?
1: Well, ten years later is when things really got into the Bethlehem era blaming mothers, and autism is not caused by bad mothering. It is very, very strongly, uh, very strongly genetic, and my mother really did everything right. I got into very good early intervention. Um, she was always stretching me, getting me to do things. Uh, You've got to stretch these kids just outside the comfort zone. No sudden surprises. But if you don't stretch, then they don't, um, they're not going to um, you know, be successful. And she always encouraged my ability in art and encouraged me to do lots and lots of different kinds of art projects.
0: Yeah, your mother seemed to be, uh, I don't know, ahead of her time. She uh, she provided a, what, a, a, a nanny a tutor for you. She she got you involved right. in some things.
1: Well, it's also, some of this was 50s upbringing, because if I went over to the next-door neighbor's house and my table managed her bad, Mrs. Wood would correct me, too. That's just the way things were done in the fifties. I mean, table manners and stuff like that was taught in a much more structured kind of way.
0: Uh, maybe we could jump to a, another book of yours. Um, this is, um, let me see, find it here, The Loving Push. And you you talk about, in that book, uh, avoiding learned helplessness.
1: Well, I've worked on that with uh, Deborah Moore, and what learned helplessness is, is one, you know, a um, was research originally done with animals, so that the animal just sort of gives up. Um, I, one of the biggest things that we wrote about in that book, which I think is actually a lot more important, is video game addictions. Mm-hmm. I am seeing too many kids playing video games for hours and hours and hours, and moms will say to me, he's 21 and I can't get him out of the basement. Um, we've got to limit the video game playing and get him doing other things. So don't ban it. But we need to keep it really under control, an hour a day, maybe two hours a day maximum. And if the kid likes JavaScript, then they need to learn program JavaScript. But I'm seeing too many bad outcomes. You know, and I'm one of those kids that if video games had been around when I was a child, I would have been a total addict. I mean, what little video game playing I'm doing, I'm going, oh, man, keep this off my phone, keep it out of the house. It's a, it's a drug, be a drug for me. You know, and st- I would have been playing video games instead of making things and spending hours making bird kites to fly behind my trike and figuring Mm -hmm. out how to make them fly.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, you think you were helped by just the, I guess, the the culture of parenting back in the 1950s? Oh, very
1: definitely. Very definitely. You see, and then when you get into the Asperger type, where there's uh, no speech delay, I had severe speech delay. I didn't talk until age four, and I had all the full-blown autistic behaviors. Then you have the kid that's socially awkward, you know, milder autistic or Asperger type no speech delay. I went to college with a lot of kids that would have been labeled Asperger's. And that more structured 50s upbringing really, really helped them. Uh, And I worked on construction projects when supervising um, installation of my projects with welders and millwrights and really good skilled tradespeople that I'm sure on the spectrum. And I think one of the big bad things the schools have done is taken out all the skilled trades. And some states are starting to put some of this stuff back in. And I think that's uh, really good because for about, 20% 20% of people on the spectrum, a skilled trade like auto mechanic would be excellent, and there's a huge shortage of auto mechanics. Mm.
0: You talk about how uh, a, a child with autism might be very much delayed with language, but uh, they could be very advanced with, with mathematics. And, uh, well, that's things.
1: right. And this, in, the, in my book, The Autistic Brain, I discuss the different kinds of minds, and this is my favorite part of the book. I talk about visual thinkers like me I talk about mathematical, pattern-type thinkers that think in mathematics. Some of these kids are very good at also very good at music. And this will often show up around third grade or so. And then you want to give that child more difficult math to do. Don't make them do baby math. My art ability showed up around uh, that same time. And there's different kinds of minds. There's the object visualizer, that's me, and then there's the pattern thinker. And the pattern thinker is your mathematician. And there's scientific research that backs this up, what we're saying. We're not just making this stuff up, and the autistic brain has got all of the scientific references.
0: Uh, so uh, tell me a little more about how your, your, your mother, I guess, your parents, those who worked with you, uh, how did they nurture this, this side of you?
1: Well, uh, manners were taught. The way my childhood was, you know, three mismanners meals, had to behave. But then in between the meals... I was allowed to do a lot of creativity, to spend hours making things. And making things was encouraged, things like parachutes. And then I'd figure out how to make the parachute strings not tangle, spend hours experimenting on that. Um, And then when Mother had a party, I was party hostess at my mother's parties. That helped teach social skills. That's a really easy thing a lot of people could do. That was very helpful to me. But the 50s upbringing, I think, did really make a big difference. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I could see today a parent, uh, you know, if you got a label of autism, they might say, oh, my child shouldn't be the party hostess.
1: Oh, no, this is all the reason why the kids should be the party hostess. They have got to learn these skills, and they're going to learn them by doing them. The other big problem area I'm seeing, especially on the fully verbal end of the spectrum, is kids are not learning job skills. And I wish we still had paper routes. So we're going to have to figure out paper route substitutes for middle schoolers like maybe walking dogs for the next-door neighbors. I want to get them out of the house doing somebody else's dogs. They've got to learn that discipline of a job. And when mother, uh, one thing Mother did with me when I was 13, she got me a little job with a seamstress, and I really liked that job. and I liked the things I could buy with uh, that job. When I was 15, I was cleaning horse stalls. And then I got a little older, I was making doing some freelance sign painting. And when I was in college, I did internships. I worked in a research lab and had to rent my own house. Then another internship, I um, worked on a summer program with autistic kids. I'm seeing too many uh, students will on the autism spectrum graduating from college and not getting jobs. And part of the problem is they've never had any work experience. There's that discipline. You've got to show up every day, and there's parts of the job are going to be fun. Other parts of the job are not going to be fun. I can remember when I worked for the Farm Arrangement Magazine, and going out and doing a feature story, that was really fun. But typing up show-and-sale results of, of the champion bulls, big lists of champion bulls, that was, that was not fun. But that was part of the job. you got to do it.
0: Hmm. One of the books, there's an example of Professor sites that uh, some of these students, I don't know how many, get to college. They've never had to uh, set an alarm clock. Their parents have done that for them.
1: Well, this is this, these basic things have to be taught, and I'm seeing too many kids kind of getting coddled. Now, you don't do sudden surprises. Don't chuck them in the deep end. But I'm seeing kids in high school that don't know how to order a hamburger at McDonald's. Mm. They don't know how to do shopping. I talked to one mom. She had an 18-year-old honor student that had never grocery shopped. These were all things that I, I had completely learned. When I was a little kid, I got 50 cents a week for allowance, and I knew exactly what I could buy with that. Five mm. comics. But if I wanted that $0.69 airplane, I had to save for two weeks. I was doing that at seven and eight years old. Hmm.
0: So it's about expectations, then.
1: That's right. And there are some problem areas. Um, They uh, might have a lot of trouble with math. A lot of these kids have uneven academic skills. There needs to be a lot more emphasis on building up the area of strength. Because that area of strength can turn into a career. You know, like art, industrial design, mathematics programming on um, you know then you've got another type of mind that's the word mind they may be good at writing but then they've got to learn to do writing assignments you've got to learn to do work that other people want
0: we're talking with uh, dr. Temple Grandin she's a professor of animal science at Colorado State University and uh, of course a uh, leading uh, voice on autism an activist in the field of autism um, as you know, well as the animal other thing, science. I'm
1: also a college professor. I'm a professor of animal science at Colorado State University, and I really like all the things I've done in the cattle industry. Half the cattle in this country are handling equipment I designed, called a piece of equipment called the Center Track Restrainer System. You want to see how that works? You can go and look at beef plant video tour with uh, Temple Grandin. Okay. See, and that's my career stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I want to talk a little bit about that, too. L- let me uh, follow up with that just before we take a break. I understand that you. I mean, this you're talking about nurturing the and and, and encouraging the, you know, the different minds you see. You say you see in pictures, right? You're visual. I see
1: totally in pictures, and a mathematician tends to see things in patterns. They'll see patterns in everything. No, I think in pictures. Like when you ask me about my childhood, I'm seeing pictures in my mind of the neighborhood.
0: Yeah, and so the, the, your 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 mind. You think in pictures. This is how you were able to come up with this groundbreaking animal restraint system
1: well because um, I think about pictures and I, what I did originally when I started working on animal handling is I went around to every feed yard in Arizona this would have been back in the 70s to figure out what parts of systems worked and what parts of systems did not work it it's um, I was out uh, doing things and and I think it's really important that I still have you know my career I have people saying, you know, why don't you just give up the livestock industry and just do autism because I think it's important that I have a real job. Mm-hmm. I've seen so many kids getting so much into their autism. They're not doing enough stuff to work on things that can be a career. Because when I, went, when I was working in construction um, with uh, installing of equipment, I worked with a lot of millwrights and welders that I know were on the spectrum. And people that kept their jobs, like a whole bunch of hippies that ran a maintenance shop at one of the big plants. And they're still there. They're, they're now retiring because they're in their late 60s now.
0: Uh, your book, Thinking in Pictures, Animals and Translation, um, it's very interesting. Uh, the word translation, I, I guess in part you're getting to the heads of, of animals. You're, you're studying how they think so that you can come up with well, without a handle them.
1: the first thing you have to think about in animals is they do not have a verbal language. So they're, all their memories and what they think about is a picture, a smell, an audio clip, a touch sensation. It's sensory based, not word based. That's the first thing that you've got to do when you're thinking about animal behavior. It's sensory based, not word based.
0: And so that I guess that can help anywhere from your work to somebody who has a pet.
1: That's right. And and in my book, Animals and Translation, I uh, I talk about the sensory based thinking.
0: Yeah, and that I guess that you're able maybe to more more closely come to this than a lot of people because of the way you, you think right in, in pictures Well
1: I, when I first started my work back in the, in the 60s in the 70s, I didn't know that other people didn't think in pictures. I thought everybody thought in pictures and it's been interesting for me to understand that they don't And as I learned that many other people tend to think more in words, this actually gave me more insight into animal behavior because I couldn't because in some of the very earliest stuff that I did, I got down in the chutes to see what cattle were seeing, because you're trying to move cattle through a chute to get them vaccinated, and the animals would um, refuse to walk over a shadow or refuse to walk over a hose laying on the ground or walk by a coat on a fence because it would distract their attention. And if you remove the distraction, then they will go through the chute. Or you have to just stand there and wait for them to look at the distraction, and then, they, then they'll go over it. It's a distraction you can't remove like a shadow
0: yeah and this is this is uh, you've got to get down to that level and look for that detail but also you have to be able to approximate that thinking
1: well it was obvious to me
0: yeah to you yeah
1: it was totally <laughs> obvious to me to get down in the chutes and look and i didn't know why it was not obvious to the other people i didn't know that start to understand that until another 10 years later when i've real and i found out other people don't think in pictures and the way i found out is i asked a speech therapist at an autism meeting to think about church steeples. And she got a vague, pointy image in her head. I have no vague, pointy image. I mm. only have specific ones, and I can name off where they're located.
2: Hmm.
0: Now, when you made that discovery, other people don't think in pictures. What what did that do to you or for you? What did, what did that...
1: Well, I think it gave me more insight why it was easy to figure out animals.
0: mm mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because you're, you are you think in that way. That's right. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk much more with Temple Grandin. We'll take a break, uh, about a minute break here, and when we come back, we'll uh, want we'll to talk about uh, labels and on her on website, uh, Temple Grandin's website, which by the way is templegrandin.com. She talks about the problem with labels. That and much more. Well, on my
1: livestock website is just my last name, Grandin.com. That's my Good. livestock website.
0: Okay, Grandin.com and TempleGrandin.com.
1: That's right.
0: More following the break.
2: Did you know that there are strategies that can help you to save money, even if you don't feel like you can put anything in the bank right now? Pre-committing to your decision to save makes you more likely to carry it out. So if you know you can put money aside in the future, set up an automatic savings plan that will go into effect a few months down the road. You can also encourage your children to save by opening a savings account for them. You can do this as soon as you have their social security numbers. And when your child is seven or eight, that is a good time to start teaching them about the value of money. Parents are the main resource children learn their spending habits from.
0: This segment of Did You Know That? has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses
2: in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah.
0: Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. We're uh, very honored to have Temple Grandin with us. Uh, She is professor of animal science at Colorado State University, a world leader in designing humane facilities for livestock. She's also an activist in the autism field. Her life has been subject of a movie. It's titled Temple Grandin. Claire Danes played her. Um, And she's author of many books. Uh, She'll be coming to uh, Utah State University on Thursday to talk about her recent book, The Autistic Brain, Helping Different Kinds of Minds Succeed. And uh, that, uh, that event is free and open to the public. It's in the Taggart Student Center Ballroom at 5 p.m. on Thursday. A book signing will follow. Dr. Grandin's books are available at the USU Bookstore. That presentation is sponsored by the Utah State University Disability Resource Center, the Department of Special Education and Rehabilitation, the Center for Persons with Disabilities, and the M. Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. We have Dr. Grandin with us for the hour, and you can join us with your question or comment at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can also join us by email to upraccess@gmail.com. at gmail.com, Upraccess at gmail.com. Uh, Dr. Grant, you talk about labels. Uh, let me quote this. One of the problems today is for a kid to get any special services in school, they have to have a label. And the problem with autism is you've got a spectrum that goes from Einstein down to someone with no language. What, what's the problem with Labels.
1: Well, one of the problems is is the autism label has become so broad. You know, I've been out to Silicon Valley. I mean, half the computer programmers are probably a bit on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And then you have someone with many, many more handicaps, you know, and it's got the same word. And one of the bad things I've seen as I travel around, I went to a really nice autism school, and here was a 12-year-old just messing around on a laptop uh, in with um, a nonverbal individuals and this kid uh, definitely should have been in a more regular type of classroom because that's going to end up holding him back. Uh, see other labels like dyslexia or something like that, that's a much narrower uh, definition. That simply means a kid has trouble with reading. That's something much more narrow, even ADHD. But you know, with autism now you've got a label going all the way from somebody that maybe should be in a gifted program to somebody that def- where that definitely would not be the right placement. But, but but people get locked into the language. See, being a visual thinker, I see the the what the individual, I see what the kid looks like. I don't get locked into the label. I, I'm going. Wait a minute. I, I went over to gifted conference and I saw those same the same kind of little socially awkward kids that are in maybe a gifted math program. Mm. Uh,
0: so I want to go back to this. Uh, you know, the computer games, and that I, I can see that is a, a big problem, and and that might just be easier to let uh, Tommy, you know, play on the games than, than, than get him out and, and learn those social skills. How, how would you suggest a parent to do that?
1: you got to limit the video games. Mm-hmm. One hour a day for the little kids, maybe uh, two hours a day on the weekend. That was the rule with uh, me with television. It was one hour a day of television. And the rest of the time, do something else, like go build something or go play outside. We've got to limit the video game Mm. playing. Most of these kids that are getting addicted to video games are not learning to program them. There are a few kids that learn to program them. uh, And if they learn to program them, well, I feel differently about it if it leads to to a career. But most of these kids are just uh, getting addicted to them. and, And what's really bad is when they get to be 18 years old and... And a mom says to me, he's 18 years old, and he's, he's in the bedroom eight hours a day playing video games. No, we need to stop them when they're like seven and eight years old. It's one hour a day. We don't ban it. One hour a day. You've got to limit it. Mm-hmm. It's got to be limited because they're not having good outcomes. Some people might say, we're well, just an old fogey against technology. I'm not against technology, but I'm against kids just zoning out on video games and having bad outcomes because I'm seeing a lot of really awful outcomes. Uh,
0: and, yeah, that can be, I guess, it can be very limiting if you don't get the, well, the job skills to, or social skills. Well, what ends up
1: happening with some of the individuals is they're playing video games on Social Security instead of fixing cars. Mm-hmm. Now, all the emphasis on reading and math in the schools has led some schools to where kids don't get exposed to enough hands-on things to find out that maybe fixing cars might be a career that they'd like. Um, I tell mm-hmm. even my regular college students, try on different careers. Mm-hmm. High school kids don't get enough exposure to figure out what careers they might want to go in. I got interested in cattle because I was exposed to them when I was 15 years old. I got interested in optical illusion rooms because I got exposed to that. And, and I'm not saying it's skilled trades for everybody, but there's one place where there's a ton of jobs right now. It's skilled trades. Welders, auto mechanics, diesel mechanics, the trucking companies are going crazy right now. Um, uh, High-level computer science jobs is a lot of jobs but there's a ton of jobs right now in skilled trades.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. A lot of growth in skilled trades, but it's it seems like at least I see in some circles there's still a bit of a stigma. You're supposed to go to college, supposed to go into a profession, not supposed to if you want to be you know, successful on a certain level go into skilled trade.
1: Well, I've worked with a lot of skilled trades people. I've worked with people in heavy construction. They were building the Cargill plant, and I had designed the yards for it. And I, now and I had was designed steel and concrete work for the cattle yards. But then I watched all the heavy construction that was going on building the plant itself. I mean, th- this takes really smart people. They're building a lot of buildings right now on our campus, and I'm watching that. Uh, it takes a lot of intelligence. People underestimate skilled trades. In fact, in my talk, I've got a picture of a jet engine with all the covers taken off. And it's really complicated when the covers are taken off. Have a little respect for the person that repairs that jet engine, because I'm going to be on a plane on Wednesday to come to Salt Lake, mm. and I want it to work.
0: Yeah, certainly. Yeah, <laughs> puts it in perspective, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: you, you said something on your website. Uh, this is templegrandon.com. By the way, grandon.com is the professional the animal uh, website on yes. the Animal Work. Um, this is very interesting. You, you follow up uh, we should nurture the skills that people with autism uh, bring to the table, not only for their benefit, but for, but for societies. You go on to say if a cure for autism were found, you would choose to say just the way you are.
1: Yes, I would. And I get asked that question all the time. And see, the problem you've got in autism is a little bit of the trait, and the genetics is incredibly complicated, but a little bit of the trait, you know, can give some advantages. Your know, brain can either be more social, emotional, or can be more intellectual too much of the trait and then you've got really serious uh, problems. Um, and I've looked up papers where a little, you know, autism genetics is associated with creativity, you know, sometimes I'm in mathematical um, mathematical ability. Uh, kids on the spectrum tend to have uneven skills. Good at one thing, bad at something else. You know, if you have a little third grader um, who's bored with third grade math, let him do more hard, let him do the more difficult math. Get the fourth grade book, get the fifth grade book, Maybe give them the high school book. The kids like me, they have trouble with algebra. Let's go straight on to geometry. You know, algebra is not the prerequisite for geometry. The Greeks invented geometry first.
0: Mm, yeah. And you say that if, if uh, algebra had been a prerequisite for graduation from college, you, you would have
1: I would have been taken sunk. A different path. And what yeah. saved me in 1967, when I was in freshman in college, finite math was the national required course, which was matrices probability, we learned a lot about slot machines and probability, and statistics. And that saved me. And with a lot of tutoring, I got through that because mm. I could visualize that.
0: And uh, so in, I guess, t- today's world, I guess, I think algebra is required, isn't it? Or some Well, that's right. I'm that.
1: seeing really stupid things. So, Like I was in, in New Jersey, and there's a community college there that wouldn't let a girl take biology because she hadn't passed algebra which is absolutely, totally ridiculous. Now, there's certain fields you need algebra. If you want to be a chemist, yes, then you do need algebra. But there's a lot of other fields, auto mechanics and design, industrial design, that's basically thing that I do. Um, psychology, if you want to study psychology, you don't need algebra. You need some statistics for psychology. And I took that, I managed to get through it with tutoring.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, your field was psychology and then you went into animal science, right? That's so, right, and
1: I had I to take statistics. and. And I managed to get through it with a lot of tutoring.
0: Mm-hmm. I wonder if we could loop back. I wonder if you tell me a little bit, and I want to later in the program talk more about your work in animal science, fascinating work. Um, the, I guess, the, well, just put it this way kids, especially teenagers, can can be pretty cruel. And I, th- oh, I think you were teased, and it was, it was pretty hard times for you. So how did you make it through that? I, th- I think you had oh, high a— high a- school,
1: worst part of my life. Bullied and teased, and the only places I was not bullied and teased was shared interests, like horseback riding or electronics. It's really important to get these kids on the autism spectrum or any of these kids that have got a label and they're quirky and they're different um, into a shared interest. It could be robotics, it could be art, it could be band, it could be music. Um, it could be a lot of different things because that's where they're going to have friends. And what I've observed it with kids on the autism spectrum, especially the higher-end, the kids that are fully verbal, is sometimes the local high school works out just fine and because they're in band or the theater or something like that. Then there's another situation where everything at the school is absolutely horrible, and they need to um, just be pulled out of school and finish up online. But if you pull a high school kid out of school and homeschool him, he's got to get a job like in the state of Colorado you can get into the regular economy at age 14 these kids have got to learn how to work there needs to be a slow transition from the world of school to the world of work and that's something i got i had a lot of job experience before i graduated from college and volunteer work does count church jobs count but they need to be on a schedule like every um, you know every thursday night or whatever you set the chairs up for the social Or the kids can be ushers, young kids. They've got to learn. It's a discipline. You're expected to be there at a certain time, and you have to do the job. It's a responsibility.
0: And that's not all job skills. It's social skills. I guess it's all bound up together.
1: Well, it's all bound up together. Mm -hmm. Because if I I recommend that with um, kids that are like 10 years old, they can be a church usher. And then what you can do to teach the social skills is get some of your friends in the congregation to make a point of shaking hands with them. So he Mm -hmm. learns how to shake hands. Yeah. And my brother, who's not autistic, he didn't like being party host at my mother's parties, but he admitted <laughs> when he got into his job at a bank, it helped him to rise in the ranks because he knew how to talk to older men and shake hands with them. Mm-hmm.
2: Your
0: your mom made him be party host, too. Huh? Oh, no. Yeah. He
1: had to be party host. My other, my two sisters had to be party hosts. <laughs> All the kids had to do party host. Yeah. I mean, that was a 50s thing. Yeah. Uh, and and then and we'd be little caterers during the cocktail party and then as soon as it was time for the sit down dinner <laughs> we were told to disappear. <laughs> but for the yeah. but for the um the cocktail hour obviously they did not have a serving drinks. So <laughs> I mean things were proper.
0: Yeah, yeah, proper. Um, yeah.
1: No, we we served the hors d'oeuvres and then when the guests came, we had to shake hands with them, talk to them and take their coats.
0: Mhm. Yeah it, sounds like, yeah, it sounds like you had uh, good parents, they were and, and you know, well, that's were some good things that come out of the 50s. Mother,
1: uh, you know, that's the way it was in the neighborhood. I'd go over to the Woods' house or the Culver's house, and I'd be eating. And if I did my table manners wrong, um, I remember one time at the Culver's, I cut all my meat up first. And Mrs. Culver said, you cut one piece off at a time.
0: <laughs> yeah. And this is this was all teaching you social skills. It was very, very right. beneficial to you. It was yeah.
1: teaching social skills hmm. in the neighborhood. Yeah. You've got to teach social skills like it, like teaching someone in a foreign country.
0: Yeah. Uh, I understand. I want to talk about mentoring. I understand you had an important mentor in high school.
1: I had a really great science teacher, and um, he gave me interesting projects to do. Uh, mentors can be so important, and he was very, very important in my life. He, he taught me how to look things up in the scientific literature. And back in the 60s, uh, there, we didn't even have copying machines in the 60s. And you had to look the journal articles up, uh, you know, using these big indexes. And then there was no way to just take the journal article and copy it on the copier and have a copier. And so you had to write the abstracts down on index cards and put them in a recipe box. And I can remember, I think it was either my first, my second year in college, we finally got a coin-operated copier. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. <laughs> now I could have my journal articles uh, in big binders.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Pro- progress, right? Yeah.
1: But but uh, when I mm-hmm. first did it there were no copiers except those heat thermofax things mm-hmm. and we weren't allowed to use that and and uh, you know, looking up things in scientific literature was hard in those days and Mr. Carlock got me fascinated learning all about that there's much more of the life than the Encyclopaedia Britannica. Mm-hmm
0: a uh, uh, very important uh, uh, time in your life as well you you ended up on a on your aunt's on That's a ranch right. in Arizona and that got you I guess into animal science what
1: happened when I was 15 mm-hmm. and that was just luck that that happened my mother got remarried when I was 14 and that brought the ranch into the family you know sometimes something happens just lucky and that was lucky how did Otherwise you... I wouldn't have been in the cattle industry
0: right. What uh, what got you into the cattle industry? What what fascinated you about animal well, behavior? Well, I got
1: fascinated with squeeze shoots, you know, and the squeeze shoots, the basis of my squeezing machine. This brings up another thing, a kid's obsessions. You know, take that obsession and broaden it out. Like if the kid likes trains or airplanes, let's read about how they work in science. Let's do mathematics with them. Let's read about the history of aviation. Take that interest and broaden it out.
0: And you were able to do that
1: that's right yeah
0: uh, tell me about the squeezing machine people who don't know about that
1: well when i got into puberty i started having horrible horrible panic attacks totally terrible panic attacks and i found i watched cattle go in the squeeze shoot and i noticed that sometimes they kind of calmed down so i built a squeezing machine apply pressure that would uh, you know help calm me down and and a lot of kids on the spectrum seek deep pressure and then later on um uh, panic attacks worsened through my 20s, I then went on a low dose of antidepressants. And I describe that in detail in Thinking in Pictures. My book, Thinking in Pictures, I describe the um, panic attacks and how the low dose of antidepressants helped me. And it's very important with antidepressants, things like Prozac or Zoloft, to use really low doses. Because if you get the dose too high, you're going to get agitation and insomnia. The person's not going to be able to sleep really low doses, that's all explained in Thinking in Pictures. And if you ha- if you have someone who's got extreme problems with panic attacks, anxiety, I'd recommend that you read Thinking in Pictures.
0: Mm. I was going to ask you about, about drugs. You take, you're saying low doses. Uh, what... I
1: take a, I've been on a low dose of antidepressants for over 30 years. I'm, I'm not going to stop taking it because I've seen too many disasters and people stop taking their medication.
0: Mm-hmm. We've talked about uh, learning uh, job skills, uh, social skills. We've talked about the, the loving push, uh, you know, the expectations. Uh, we just talked about uh, drugs in, in the right proportion. What else would you suggest, for especially for parents or for
2: Well, I want
1: to emphasize, take the thing the kid's good at and build on it. Another thing we haven't discussed is sensory issues. And sensory oversensitivity varies from being just mild. Like when I was a little kid, the school bell hurt my ears. Um, to some kids can absolutely not tolerate a large, noisy supermarket. Now, one of the ways to help desensitize that is let the child have some control. Like, for example, um, if he can't tolerate too much Walmart, we'll let him go, okay, we'll go in for just a minute, and when you raise your hand, I'll take you out. You know, give him some control. Or if you have a headset to block out the noise, you say, well, I want you to wear it around your neck. So you've got it there if you need it. But then you want to try not to put it on. Mm-hmm. But you have it if you really need it. You see, that gives the kid control. And because if you wear that headset all the time, it's going to make the hearing sensitivity worse. It's got to be off for half the day.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I know a boy, a family has a boy with a, with, who's on the spectrum. Um, they got him a, a therapy dog, a little dog. that uh, Well, some
1: the kids, that's really a helpful thing. You know, it, for other kids, see, some kids, they're just best buds with the dog. It's the best thing you ever did. And then there's other kids that that might not like the dog because they're afraid it's going to bark and hurt their ears. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd say for about half the kids, it's probably you know, you know, really, really a good thing. You see, they're they're not all the same.
0: And that that's, I guess, as you said before, that is a problem we have to work through because the the autism spectrum includes a lot of different. Uh, well you, know, you can't so overgeneralize
1: it, I find yeah. when parents and, and teachers ask me about behavior problems, they overgeneralize. They'll say, Well what do I do about autistic behavior problems in the classroom? I said, Well I've got to know more about the kid. How old? Is he verbal? Nonverbal? What's he doing in the classroom? I can't um I can't even answer that until I get more information. And there are a few things that are kind of universal. One of the things you don't do with these kids is long strings of verbal instruction. That does not work. Give them a pilot's checklist if they've got a task that has a number of different steps.
0: I just wanted to throw out some statistics here, and you can find this at templegrana.com. One in 88 U.S. children has been identified on the, the autism spectrum disorder. Uh, the national estimated prevalence of uh, ASDs increased 78% between 2002 and 2008. The majority, 62% of children with ASD, uh, autism spectrum disorder, disorder, did not have intellectual disabilities. So as we, that just reemphasizes there's there's a lot there, and I guess you just you have to dig into the specifics. Well,
1: that's the thing, and I'm seeing too often times I'm seeing a kid who's fully verbal, who might be gifted in math or art, getting stuck in a class with you know much more severe kids and because they're just going by the label and and then i get asked about homeschooling or not homeschooling i'm um, what i want to see is good outcomes all i can say on homeschooling if a high school kid is homeschooled and he's fully verbal he needs to get a job and uh, you may have to put him in the informal economy he's got to learn how to work outside the home and a discipline and responsibility of showing up at a job on time i had my first job at Thirteen with a freelance seamstress, and that was just done in the informal economy, and she just paid me cash. Loved that job.
0: Uh, as, as we're talking here, and you're you're suggesting some principles. Um, part of this in your story, though, and it maybe has to be in each person's story. Uh, I I can guess you're very determined. You you uh, you found ways to to make it work, all the way to well, PhD and sort professorship. Of like,
1: and, uh, well, it all gets back to spending hours when I was a child figuring out how to make my bird kite fly behind my trike. And I put little up, upturned wing tips, just like what a commercial Jetta has, and experimented for hours, stiffening the wings with different amounts of tape. And then I decided to go back as an adult and try to duplicate my, my bird kites. It wasn't all that easy. I found that plastic grocery bag did not work for tail. I had to go back and get the exact crate paper I'd use as a child, and then I was able to get it to fly. Hmm.
0: Yeah, some great examples. Let's take another yeah. break. Uh, more with uh, Dr. Temple Grandin uh, following the break. Uh, Temple Grandin is Professor of Animal Science at Colorado State University. Uh, She is author of uh, many books. Uh, She'll be talking about the autistic brain, helping different kinds of minds succeed at Utah State University. That event is on Thursday at 5 p.m. in the Taggart Student Center Ballroom on the USU campus. It's free and open to the public. A book signing will follow. The presentation is sponsored by the Utah State University Disability Resource Center, the Department of Special Education and Rehabilitation, the Center for Persons with Disabilities, and the M. Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services. More following the break.
3: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities. Proudly celebrating its 40th anniversary, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement in the humanities. Details at utahhumanities.org. And the Chamber Music Society of Logan presenting Kalmus, a vocal ensemble from Germany featuring love songs ranging from Edward Elgar to Elton John. Thursday, March 31st, 7.30 at the USU Performance Hall. Information at cmslogan.org.
2: Hey, what's up? I'm Shad. Saul Williams is a poet, a singer, and outspoken on matters of inequality and identity. Next time on Q, I'll speak with him about his album, Martyr, Loser, King, and why he thinks losers are the real winners. That's coming up on Q from PRI, Public Radio International.
0: Join us Monday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We're spending the hour with Temple Grandin. We're uh, pleased that she's uh, able to be with us. Uh, She is a professor of animal science at Colorado State University and a world leader in designing humane facilities for livestock. She's also a prominent author and activist in the autism field, and her life is the subject of a 2010 HBO movie. She's author of The Autistic Brain, Helping Different Kinds of Minds Succeed. Also author of Emergence, Labeled Autistic, Uh, uh, Different, Not Less, The Way I See It, Unwritten Rules of Social Relationships, and many other books. She's coming to uh, Logan For an event on the USU campus, free and open to the public, it's Thursday, 5 p.m. in the Taggart Student Center Ballroom. On the USU campus, a book signing follows. Dr. Grannon's books are available in the USU bookstore. This presentation is sponsored by the Utah State University Disability Resource Center, Department of Special Education and Rehabilitation, Center for Persons with Disabilities, and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services. You are welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495 or by email to upraccess at gmail.com. We have uh, Dr. Grandin with us for another 10 minutes. Dr. Grandin. I'm, I want to talk a little bit more about your work, uh, and I'm over at grandon.com, which is uh, on, the, on the livestock work. Um, so we talked about how you, you went out to this ranch. You got an interest in animal behavior. How did that translate then into animal restraint and, and uh, livestock behavior design of facilities?
1: Well, I was done. Then I, well, I first did when I first started. is so I was going to every feed yard in Arizona, and work in cattle, and I kind of tried to figure out what facilities work, what kind of facilities don't work, it's kind of bottom-up thinking. A lot You get lots of specific examples, and you kind of figure out a common denominator of a, something that works or does not work. And, and then I, I uh, started working for the Farmer Ranchman magazine, and then gradually I got to do my first design job, you I know, mean, sort of work into it, building up my business freelance, you know, one project at a time. And I've seen uh, students that are extremely good at art. They need to do the same thing. I talked to one lady who drew beautiful pictures of people's pets. And I said to her, you know, if you put those in a nice frame, people will pay you three or $400 for those. You know, she didn't realize the talent that she had. You can just start doing pictures of pets, and you can make a living doing that. So we got to start figuring out. we got to get more oriented towards, you know, careers. One of the things that the construction industry and building things has taught me is I would design a project, then I'd supervise its construction. You have to get it finished. You have to make it work. It's all about outcomes. And I want to see these uh, smart kids uh, have good outcomes, You know, get a job that they really like, uh, that they can enjoy doing, um, have, a go- have a good life. I do not want to see them ending up in the basement playing video games on Social Security.
0: Mm-hmm. In general, do you think things are getting better or, or worse in terms of well, how we... Well, for
1: little kids, things are 10,000 times better. Mm-hmm. Getting little kids into early intervention, that's so important. That is absolutely, absolutely approved, has improved. That's really good. But I think the, the today's less structured um, society, where they're not teaching the manners in the way we were taught in the 50s, is hurting, uh, getting into all the you know video game addictions and things like that. Um, uh, there are some kids that ought to be in a skilled trade or maybe ought to become a college professor that aren't getting there that would have actually gotten there in my generation because these were kids that had no speech delay more the asperger type of kids i've worked with so many people professionally that i know are on the spectrum and people my age that i know are on the spectrum and pound in the manners and they managed to get jobs and managed to keep them Hmm. and and people in the uh i've worked with people in the cattle industry that I know were on the spectrum. They were very, very good at working with animals. They were all undiagnosed, of course. Mm-hmm. But you see, I see the person, I'm going, wait a minute, I think of this kid I went to college with that I was friends with. He would definitely be diagnosed Asperger's or, or ASD today.
0: So what about, uh, there's a problem with labeling, and yet it's probably helpful to get a diagnosis. What, what would you say about the, kind of the competing uh, outcomes there? Or
1: well, aims. little kids, I can, all I can say, and I do a lot of talks in some very low-income areas, if you have a 3-year-old that's not talking, the treatment's the same regardless of the diagnosis. Um, uh, you've got to start working with this kid and working with them now. You can't just let them sit in the corner. You've got to start getting 20 hours a week of FaceTime, uh, uh, um, uh, working with that kid, teaching them words, and you've got to teach these little ones how to take turns. got to. Don't wait. You've got to work with this kid and start working with them right now. Uh, the diagnosis right now is he doesn't talk and his behavior's messed up. You start working with him right now.
0: And taking turns—that's something that I recall they got reading. To
1: learn to take turns, take turns. They got to learn to wait and take turns. And I'm really sorry I interrupted. I didn't wait and take my turn. <laughs> you,
0: that's right. <laughs> I was just going to say that that is something that I think your your mom, your your uh, your tutor when you were growing up that, that they were, I guess, ahead of their time. There, they they made you take turns, right?
1: Well, all kids were taught these things too, you know, in that era. You know, and, and board games were really popular in that era. And that's something you have to do with somebody else. I had a table hockey set when I was a child. Well, you have to play that with somebody else. Things that were fun in my generation, you had to do it with somebody else. Mm. And board games were very popular. Kids played them all the time, and you've got to take turns when you play those games.
0: You uh, Imagine you get uh, a fair number of... Questions, do you, that come in through the website, or do you do workshops? Yeah, we do,
1: and a lot of questions are, are people ask a lot of similar questions. What do I do about sound sensitivity? What do I do about picky eating? You know, there's a lot of uh, questions. Uh, how, do, how do I tell what kind of thinker my kid is? Well, I'll answer that one right now. If you have a third grader that's really good at art, well, he's probably a visual thinker. And you have a kid that's good at math, uh, well, don't make him do baby math, because if you do that, He's going to turn into a behavior problem, give him more challenging work to do. But that kid that might be super good in math and needs to move ahead in math might need help with reading.
0: We have an email that's come in from Linda uh, who asks, what is music for you? I'm a visual thinker like you who loves geometry, but algebra and calculus are foreign languages. But I love classical music and wonder if music plays a part in your life.
1: No, I really like music. Um, now I tried to learn to play a musical instrument. That did not work because I have a little bit of a coordination problem. Um, so, but there are some uh, individuals in the autism spectrum that are extremely musically gifted, and that needs to be developed. You can make a career out of music. We've got to start thinking a lot more about what can this kid do when he grows up because my ability in art turned into designing things. Mm -hmm. You see, what I do with the cattle, actually, there's a whole field, it's called industrial design. Because in engineering, you have two sides of designing something. You have the artist or the industrial designer, for example, Steve Jobs designed the interface on the iPhone, that was done by an artist. And then the engineers have to make the inside of the phone work. You see, there's both the art side and the mathematical engineering side to designing things, and the iPhone is a perfect example.
0: Uh, tell me more about how you would go about um, finding out, I guess, probably simple ways to find out if your child is a visual thinker or a concrete thinker. Well, it's
1: usually, it's pretty easy. It doesn't show up oftentimes at age two or three. It's more likely to show up second, third grade, and the child's going to be good at drawing. And, or the child's going to be really good at math. But if he's made to do the same boring things over and over again, then you just get a behavior problem. So So you mainly just observe it. It's not really that hard to to figure that out. And if you give the child, uh, like the pattern thinkers, give them all kinds of visual things to do. Like if you go on Google for images and you type geometry in, Google for images, you'll find fabulous visual websites, all kinds of fun things. I've got a little thing right here called Fractiles that I picked up at a conference, at a gifted conference. It's uh, making patterns out of little pieces. It's called Fractiles uh, 7. Um, There's, um, uh, you type trigonometry into Google for images, you get all kinds of great, fabulous visual websites. You can use stuff like that, and a lot of it's free. Hmm. Um, But the talent will show up if you just let it blossom, and usually second or third grade. There's some exceptions where it occurs younger, but usually uh, not the case.
0: Let's go to a caller from Logan uh, next. A uh, caller for Temple Grandin. Um, go ahead. Glad you called.
2: Well, hi Temple.
1: Hi. How are you?
2: I'm I'm doing well, thanks. And okay. I thank you for being on the show. I just would like to ask you a quick question about how you have dealt with um, the transition between, you know, designing cattle to giving presentations and Did universities, did forums discover your work and then contact you, or did you draft a proposal and start approaching institutions? Oh,
1: nothing happened that formally. Uh, When I gave my first talk in graduate school, I panicked and walked out. And then Uh I got invited um, to do a talk uh, at an ag engineering meeting, and to solve the panic problem I made sure I had really great slides so I froze, I could fall back on my slides. And basically, you know, design stuff sort of happens one project at a time. How did I start writing for the magazine? The movie showed me walking up and getting the editor's card. That's exactly what I did. And one of the things that enabled me to do that was party hostess when I was a child. Things start okay. out one little thing at a time.
2: All right. So you're saying that it started with you in the in the social setting being a party hostess assistant, which is, I love that you said that, because that's exactly what I do with my, uh, she just turned six, my older daughter. Good, good,
1: and good. And has been really
2: successful. I don't know whether she's on the autism spectrum. I suspect that I have, um, have traits on the Asperger's spectrum. I remember watch, watching your talk in around 2006 and yeah. just being a, uh, kind of gobsnacked by the realization that I have a lot of the traits that you described. I was fortunate to be raised by my grandparents who were raised in the 50s, so I did have some of that discipline, and my father was... That's thinking, right.
1: Like, you see, and what worries yeah. me is there might be a young version of you right now that has a lot more problems. I'm, uh, you see, autism is a continuous trait. When does slightly socially awkward and geeky become autism? There's no black and white dividing line, and the genetics is very, very complicated. Many little different code, uh, code reversals, extra little bits of code called repeats that are sort of like uh, genetic volume controls. It's not, simple. It's not a simple um, Mendelian trait, and you probably are a little bit on the spectrum. And, and it's like a little bit of that... Uh, autism spectrum can give some talent in art or music or maybe mathematics. Then you get too much of it, then you get a nonverbal child, then you may get epilepsy on top of it and other problems.
0: Our, our mm-hmm. caller, uh, thank you. Thank you for calling. We're, yep. we're down near the Thanks end of the time.
1: Thank
2: you for I look forward to you. Talk on Thursday. Okay.
0: Bye-bye. Thanks. Thank you very much. Uh, And we have reached the end of our time. Just want to uh, say the Temple Grandin will be in Logan on Thursday. It's uh, an event on the USU campus at the Taggart Student Center Ballroom, 5 p.m. It's free and open to the public, uh, and a book signing will follow. The presentation is sponsored by the USU Disability Resource Center, Department of Special Education and Rehabilitation, Center for Persons with Disabilities, and M. Echel Jones College of Education and Human Services. Uh, Temple Grandin's website is probably a good uh, place to go to check out her books and uh, everything about her. TempleGrandin.com is the general website, and Grandin.com is the website on her work with animal behavior. Uh, Temple Grandin, it's uh, been uh, such a pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Okay, great to be with you. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Bye now. Okay. Uh, Temple Grandin, our guest uh, for the hour, uh, we uh, are going to look into a very interesting uh, subject tomorrow on the program. We got an email from a listener who said they had come across an article in the Standard Examiner in Ogden about a man getting arrested for an unpaid ambulance bill. He died while in jail. And the listener said, I can't believe we're still arresting people for not being able to pay things. Are we back to debtor's prison? We're going to talk about that tomorrow on the program. Thanks for listening today. This is Utah Public Radio. KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM
1: HD1 Logan.
3: service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. This is Utah Public Radio.